Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call. Welcome back to another Celtics Blog Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Taylor. I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Shields. And today we've got a special episode. We had an interview with Sean Grande around about two hours before recording. We had to fit in with the time schedule of Sean. To do so, what we did was we recorded that audio and then we're going to embed that into this podcast and this podcast will be a guest appearance from Sean. Tim was super excited about this. So, Tim, how do you feel now the, episode, now the interview's t- taken place? Uh, just incredible. Uh, it's not very often that you get to go ahead and interview a guy of his caliber. He's been involved in the industry for years. Uh, and it's just wild. Guys, this is a very special podcast. Sean Grandy is a legend in Boston. Um, him and Cedric Maxwell have been calling Celtics basketball games since 2001. So, he's been doing this damn near 20 years so there's nobody else in the business and he's going to have some really really great insight especially for those who are looking to try and get into the sports broadcasting business uh he's done every variety of sports under the sun and just an incredible guy very very good conversation and super insightful so definitely a special episode so guys from here we're going to play a little bit of an intro into it in music style and then the rest of this episode will be an interview with sean grandy You know, it spun out of control. Like when I signed up, Bellator wasn't doing international shows. And by the time I was eight or nine months in, we did our first show in Italy. And that's when they realized that's where the money was. So we did Italy and we did a couple of shows in England. And we did a couple of shows in Ireland. And we did, you know, Belfast and Dublin and Budapest. And and I was not set up to, to manage that kind of schedule. So it, yeah, spun out of control pretty quick. So how did your career start as a broadcaster? How did you get into that? Well, I usually answer that question by saying my career as a broadcaster began when I couldn't hit, you know, 14-year-old pitching anymore. And uh, my great dreams of playing second base for the Mets uh, <laughs> faded away. And I knew I'd always wanted to be in the, in the major leagues somehow. And my ticket, the, my skill set to get there was broadcasting. And I had always loved it from the time I was a kid and always studied all the announcers and do commentary in my head or often to the chagrin of the people sitting next to me at games out loud. And, uh, you know, everybody has the thing that they're probably most natural at. And that was, that was me. I was waiting for Tim to jump in. (laughs) (laughs) So like, um, a good friend of ours, um, is a aspiring broadcaster and he covers like, um, college sports at the moment, just at his local college where he's at. And he'd kill me if I didn't ask this question of, what should he be doing next to try and make the jump? Well, he's already doing it. He's doing every game you can do. And I've often, you know, when I, when I speak to, to kids that want to go into this, everybody's a kid to me now when I used to be the kid. But when I speak to students at, at Boston University here or wherever, or even younger, there's sports casting camps now in the United States, which they didn't have, which would have been awesome when I was a kid. They didn't have them when I was a kid. Do every game you can do. Do everything you can do because play-by-play is play-by-play whether you're doing a high school girls field hockey game or you're doing game seven of the NBA finals 
it's the same. You're still telling a story and you're describing for people that can't see it what's happening. You're carrying the news. And that skill set is that skill set. No matter what you're doing, you can't get enough reps because reps don't come naturally. You have to go and find them when it comes to play-by-play. So I'd say he's doing the right thing by getting as many reps as you can. And, and the path to a quote-unquote major league job is not what you think it is. It's not like playing where you go to single A and double A and triple A and then you get called up. You practice wherever you can practice. You get a minor league job, you get a college job, and you just try to get better at your task while getting noticed. And as you said, you've been doing this for 25 plus years and you've covered almost every sport. How did you originally get that Celtics job? How did that kind of come to fruition? Well, I went, I was in the NBA for three years before that in Minnesota. And what, again, part of the sort of what I always tell people about being ready every year, I speak to a sportscasting camp and in Boston and the kids come here. And the first thing I do is I say, how many of you in here want to be the voice of the Boston Red Sox and half the hands shoot up. And I said, okay, this is what I'm talking about. There are three play-by-play jobs for the Boston Red Sox. So all of you in this room are not going to be the voice of the Boston Red Sox. So that means you need to be ready if it's another team in the major leagues that calls, or if it's the Oklahoma City Thunder, or it's the Calgary Flames, or it's Liverpool, or it's a major league job somewhere else. You have to be able to do as many different things as you can do because when that call came from the Timberwolves, which now is what, 20, oh my gosh, 22 years ago almost, when I was, you know, just a kid in my 20s, that was the major league job. And basketball at that point, you know, in, in the States, you got your big four, right? And there's, there's basketball, hockey, football, and baseball. And I don't know what my number one was, but basketball was a distant fourth. And the other three were probably equal to me. Everyone assumed, because most of the work I had done was in hockey, that the NHL was going to be my path. But the summer that I was ready to go and the first made big offer I got was in the NBA. And that was my path. And 22 years later, now everyone, you know, the first line of my obituary is going to be the longtime voice of the Boston Celtics. I get that. But that wasn't my quote-unquote path because I was a baseball hockey guy and football guy coming up. But be ready to be able to do as many different things as you can do because that just opens up so many more opportunities. And being called in to do an NBA play-by-play and being the voice of a sport that as you say, was your distant fourth. Did you have like a transition period where you really struggled to kind of get to grips with how the pace of that game went compared to that of, say, baseball? I think I had done a lot of bas- I had done a lot of college basketball. Um, I, didn't, I probably didn't have the – it was nothing like when I jumped into MMA five years ago where I was coming completely from zero because I had still been a basketball fan. It was just that, you know, there's only so many hours. And you're growing up in New York, the Rangers, the hockey team, and the Knicks are playing at the same time. So you can be a Knicks fan and you can go to Knicks games and you can follow the Knicks and root for the Knicks, but it's hard to be a hardcore hockey and a hardcore basketball fan growing up. So I just always gravitated to hockey. It's not like I wasn't, I didn't have a affection for the sport of MMA or whatever, but how many hours are there in the day to watch all these different things? So um, I, I think there was going to be an adjustment period no matter where I went, because I was going into a major league job after doing mostly college sports. And I was going in fairly young. I was, what, 27 or something when I went into the NBA. And that's really young to get a job like that, particularly on television. So a lot of the adjustment is to the life, you know, that your life changes 
dramatically to being on the road all the time. And suddenly this is your, you know, your full-time employment and play-by-play had been my aspiration, but it was, you know, part-time you're working full-time at a radio station or you're doing other things and play-by-play had never been out by full-time job. So that was a big adjustment. Obviously I had to move, you know, a thousand miles and that was a, a big adjustment too. So I think the adjustments when you get the big job, if you prepared properly your entire career for the big job, the adjustments shouldn't be the work. The adjustment should be your life around the work. Yeah, this sounds like you're preaching to me at the moment, um, specifically, um, (laughs) being based where I'm at and then the work I'm putting in to try and get noticed as an English guy trying to cover an NBA team. And then if that was to be successful, the adjustments that that would take as well. So it's really interesting to hear how you had kind of had to pivot and adjust to that life with a thousand miles of moving involved, where that's something very similar to what I'd need to do. We just changed to 1,000 miles to a 7,000 miles. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And you know, there, Hey, there was a time when I first came in the league, it seemed almost, there were times it felt inevitable that the NBA was going to expand. But I think, you know, from the late nineties, you know, into, into Europe from the late nineties into the two thousands, what's changed in the 20 years is we, we realized how small the globe is now from a television and an internet standpoint. And that the notion 20 years ago, that premier league soccer would be a thing in the United States. And that's something that's really hurt MLS is that people, people in America particularly, they want the best. They want the best of the best. So they're more interested. They're going to watch the Premier League, especially with the time difference, on Saturdays here and become invested in that versus what they would perceive to be, whether it is or not, or what it's going to be in 20 years, who knows. Uh, not trying to pick a fight with any of the MLS people, but they're going to gravitate towards the the best of the best. And I think the feeling was in Europe with the success the league has had in China that they realize you can have a business model that develops fans in the UK and in China and now in Africa without necessarily expanding the existing product to try to fly the Celtics and the Knicks to you know to London to play a local team there. You can have a successful business without doing that between television and a couple of games a year. It's a really fact, what's, You know what's interesting about that? It's funny. I hadn't thought of this until then. Adam Silver, I don't know how much he's talked about this. He is a big proponent of having teams play like once or twice a year, play a game at on, say, Thursday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because the, the slight hit you take from your fans for playing a weekday afternoon game, one of the 41 home games – you make up for that by that being a prime time game in Europe on television. And it's sort of something he wants to, to put into place. So he's very, very cognizant of the fan base and the potential television viewership in Europe. I've been a very big um, vocal voice on social media for when games are prime time English time. We had one the other day, actually. Um, it is so much easier for me, but I understand that as a business, the money mainly flows in the States. So I, deal with it i feel it's very harsh though that you guys get premier league football in the mornings at your time and then yeah. get nba at like 2 a.m yeah it's uh it is uh, that is a little bit unfair i thought but you know we didn't i i think of all the things that america can be blamed for which way the world spins we, we got enough stuff that we screw, <laughs> we've screwed up on our own without taking the blame for uh for all that but yeah that's, that's an example is that people think I, I think the television viewership you know we come from the older you are the more you're attached to the idea of drawing fans and ticket sales and things like that, the younger you are or the more aware you are 
you realize that this is about reaching people. David Stern was ahead of the game that way. Adam Silver's ahead of the game that way. This is about reaching fans in whatever way you can reach them. And um, over the years, you've met a multitude of players, I assume, and you've called so many games. Overall, just even beyond the Celtics, who are some of your favorite players to interact with, and what were some of your favorite or me- most memorable calls of a game? I think it's tough to have, you know, I, I'll tell you something that's changed. This is more of, again, broadcasting advice. Like when I first got in the league, I really kept my distance from players almost as much as possible because I had this idea that you had to be distant and neutral and you didn't want to develop attachments. Then you realize from a human standpoint, you could become buddies with somebody on the team and the next day they get traded halfway across the country too and that you lose, you know, your friends that way and that coaches change and coaches get fired and players get traded and things like that. Um, I was very lucky in that probably the going into the league in 1998, I remember being a big fan of Kevin Garnett and then I ended up going to Minnesota. I ended up being a big fan of Ray Allen. He ends up coming to Boston to the team that I was of covering. Um, you know, I was lucky to spend all those years around Paul Pierce and there's a lot of different players that you spend time with. You wouldn't necessarily think of Antoine Walker. I think the public perception and getting to know people often can be very different. I, I talk about Rashid Wallace in that example a lot because he was one of my favorite dudes ever to be around and to, uh, and to travel with. Gary Payton, too, was another longtime player that I had been a huge fan of and loved his game, and then I got to call one of his last years. He came to Boston you know, in 2004, 2005 and got to travel with him. Uh, from a game standpoint, I think you always go back to that 2008 run. I tend to fall back. There's been, you know, I'm coming up. Somebody told me this recently. I'm coming up on 2000. NBA game. So that's a lot. And it's hard to, you know, they start to blend together at some point. But what I remember, I think the game I remember most because it had to do with me kind of going to the next level in my own view, in the profession, in my ability, plus it being the biggest game at the time was a game seven that the Celtics played on their way to the championship against LeBron James and the Cavs in 2008. That just was this, you know, we had grown up on this famous Larry Bird versus Dominique Wilkins game. And then Celtic fans in the NBA had a new one in LeBron versus Paul Pierce that day with the Celtics, you know, winning 66 games and being heavily favored. And LeBron got the Cavs, carried them all the way to the seventh game, and it went down to the fourth quarter. And that was really the last difficult task for the Celtics, who had a much easier time beating the Pistons and the Lakers um, to win the championship. So that's usually the game I remember. But uh, it's it's good that you ask me now because, you know, in another 10 years, I'll be so senile. I won't be able to distinguish <laughs> or, or remember those games from all the way back. When I look at some of the guys and some of my colleagues and I look at them in their 70s and I'm like, wow, you got to be kidding that you're still still doing this after all these years. But because it will it will wear you down every, you know, traveling on Christmas every year. It's tough on families. It's tough to be a dad. It's, it's tough to be a new husband. It's, you know, the travel will, you know, it's a lifestyle choice that I think suits younger people better. That makes a lot of sense too, as you said, with family making that difficult. That worries me because I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) You're young at heart. That's all that matters. (laughs) I I think the big thing to note about that and just the way that you're talking about all these players I think what it waters down to the real root of the conversation is people get into the industry because they're fans, because they're passionate, because they care and they're following a team that they love. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. I think it's, I think that's probably the real reason why everyone still 
does all the things, does all the traveling, even if it might be straining on, you know, family and home life. It's one of those things where it's that passion that drives you. Um, so yeah, you, and you don't have family life, right? Like when you're, when I'm six years old and I'm like, I want to be in the major leagues when I grow up. And then you're 15, 16. You're like, I want to be a major league broadcaster. That's what I want to do for life. Forget like marriage. The idea of being a dad is completely uh, it's beyond a foreign concept. Even when I'm talking to college kids, you just can't even fathom that. And then all of a sudden, you know, your son turns again. That was one of the reasons I had to give up the MMA job. My son was one thing I, when I took it, he was three and a half. But then as he gets older and older, you realize I can't be spending extra time. Oh, you know, the Celtics job is going to take me away for 50 something nights a year. And that's plenty, you know, for my son when he's six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Yeah. And that's definitely has to be a factor, as you said, with the MMA job as well. Uh, pivoting over to this year um, and just talking about the team in general, what do you think about this team? You know, it seems like there's a lot of chemistry and it's definitely cool to watch Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum do what they've been doing and developing the way they are. What's it like to be around that environment as someone who's close to the team? I think the coolest thing in the coolest jobs in play by play, obviously there are some huge national jobs and I've been able to do neutral games and national games and be a national announcer in certain spots. But the romanticism of the job to me has always been documenting a team from the first day of training camp to the end of that season and telling the story start to finish. And when you do that for multiple years, one of the true joys is watching the Paul Pierce career arc. And now for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, seeing them from their first steps in the NBA and watching them and do it together is pretty cool. You know, when you, it's just, it's so abstract when you have, when you draft Jason Tatum to play with Jalen Brown and you say, well, in three or four years, the NBA is going to be about six foot six wing guys that can defend multiple positions and shoot the three and whatever. And that's a little abstract three years ago. And then not only do you watch their development, but the league changes just as people projected it would at the same time. And all of a sudden, almost, it seems like out of nowhere, but it's really not. You have, you know, Jalen Brown could have been an all-star, and Jason Tatum obviously was. That could have been reversed if they had made the selections a couple of weeks earlier. And uh, you get to sort of document this rise. What the Celtics have done, which is most remarkable, is, you know, the Sixers, and they're having their issues right now, obviously, but Philadelphia still has two elite young players and something to build around and can be one of the better teams and should be one of the best teams in the league. But look what they had to go through to get there. Look at those five empty winters, you know, winning 20 games a year and just being terrible. And that the Celtics have done this pretty much on the fly, potentially tomorrow night, potentially Friday night. And if not Friday night, sometime over the weekend, the Celtics are going to clinch their sixth consecutive playoff spot. And their what's the number now? It'll be their 16th in the 19 years I've been there. And that's sort of, that's when you're rebuilding on the fly because there are teams that have missed the playoffs seven, eight, nine years in a row. And here's the Celtics going to the playoffs every year and all these trips to the conference finals and doing it now with different players. And that's, that's really difficult to do because a lot of teams are documenting the rise of Simmons and Embiid or their two young good players is starting in 20 win seasons. What these guys have had to do is do it, you know, sort of on the fly. Jalen Brown's been in the playoffs. Jalen Brown went to the conference finals his first two years. Jalen Brown has gone to the second round of the playoffs all three years of his career. Jason Tatum's gone to the second round of the playoffs in both years of his career and obviously should again, the way things are projecting and that that's tough to do. So I know that um, we're running short on time here. So I have one last question. Um, I feel like this would be a good way to close out the interview with you admitting you feel like your career has got 
well, you said within the next 10 years. <laughs> Do you have any plans on ending your career covering the NHL? Seems it was your true love went growing up. That's, it's funny you'd ask it that way. And I've never, I literally never been asked. And that's a great sign of my age. It's like the first time I've been asked about the potential and you always think about it, but you know, there are times you poke, you poke your head over the wall. And at this point, it really seems like it's going to be more about opportunity to do individual things here and there. It's one of the reasons I did the MMA so I could check that box. And I did boxing for a year and a half and I, I've done an NFL game, but you're always looking for challenges and more things to do to check that box. But again, it really has to do with more of the faith and who knows, you know, my son is eight and a half and maybe in six, seven years when he's deep into high school and he's thinking about college and he'd rather much rather hang out with his friends and his girlfriend than his dad, then maybe that's when your focus starts to come back to how, what would that ending, what would you like that ending to be right now? You always, I think we're all older than we think we are. And you tend to think of yourself if you're me as being sort of in the middle, but you know, maybe you're, you're not, you know, you're in your, in your late forties. And listen, we have, I, I've worked alongside Mike Gorman for 20 years and Mike Gorman who does the Celtics games on TV is 72, 73 and he's still going. So that's like 25 years out for me. I can't really fathom it, but who the heck knows, uh, you know, is really the answer to that question. But you're always looking for the next challenge in your life. And I always have professionally. It's just that my challenge the last couple of years and the next couple of years is about being the best dad I can be and being the best Celtics announcer I can be. And when that, if a time comes that it makes sense to, to finally get some NHL games or to, you know, do NFL or whatever it is, of course, intellectually, you're going to be, you're going to be open to that. That's again, going back to the beginning. That's what I, you want to be ready for whatever, whether you're 22 or 48, you want to be ready when the, when the phone rings and not be able to, and be able to tackle whatever challenges thrown at you. So my daughter's about the same age as what you're saying your son is at the moment. So I can understand in the sense of needing to be around them as well. But again, as you say, in another 10 years, they're going to be doing their own thing. So you never know, you might be 72, 75, God willing, and then still be covering a sport that you really love. I mean, you don't, listen, in this business, you don't say no to anything. You literally don't say no when, uh, and I'll, I'll use the word soccer instead of football because I was raised on it as an American as much as it may hit your ears wrong. But you, <laughs> I had never, I got asked the question, 1998, the year I, right was I was about to go in the league. I had done a lot of college hockey work uh, and hockey work for the local, with the station the Celtics are now on. And that was a World Cup year. And their revolution, New England Revolution soccer announcer had gone to the World Cup. And they called me and asked if I could do soccer. And here's another lesson for any young announcers. The answer, and I'll ask you guys, when somebody asks you, hey, can you do this? What's the answer to that question? Yes, thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. Of course, <laughs> of course, I had never been to a soccer match. I had never been. Okay, but the answer is yes, particularly when you're 26. The answer is yes, and I did it, and I studied, and I learned hard, and it's funny because the, the game I ended up doing ended up being 5-3, to three, which obviously in that sport is a, a geyser of, of scoring. Um, but you, the answer is always yes. So with the exception of now when my son does come first, if it's something that doesn't really adversely affect my time with him or whatever, then the answer is always going to be yes, and it should be because – you should always be looking to challenge yourself. And that, again, that's the, the, the concept. The reason I bring up the MMA thing is it would have been very easy to say no to that because, you know, you're 40 years old and that's oh, something new and I got to study and you're sort of exposing yourself to a new group of fans who are kind of sitting back waiting to not like you. 
because who are you to come from the big fancy NBA into their sport? And but you've got to accept all these challenges. And I think this goes to beyond broadcasting, but probably life. That going outside your comfort zone is always a good thing. I'm really jealous you got to cover MMA. I've been doing um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for about seven or eight years now. So I'm a big fan of the MMA, but I do understand how difficult that must be coming in and then having to learn the sport on the fly while reporting on it. The only advantage to it was, as I often said at the time, was that the history of it was the sport was 25 years old when I, not even, you know, when I started. So it wasn't like studying something that was 500 years old. And most of the history of MMA was available on YouTube. It wasn't like studying the history of the Visigoths or something that you had to, you know, go to the library and check out some encyclopedia. You could watch a lot of it and learn. And, you know, if you are an MMA fan, then this may mean something to you, but it's another broadcast example of a great ESPN producer told me that it's about being ready. You have to be ready because eventually your number is called. As a play-by-play guy, you're not forcing your shot, but the moment is going to come. And this is the story I tell. It's not just an MMA story, but it, it applies. So I was brand new, and I had to study. And I studied everything I could study, and I learned, and I learned. And I did my best on the fly. I became an expert on the Bellator fighters, obviously, and the Bellator storylines and all those things. But you study and study and study. Eventually, I'm calling a fight between uh, Britain's Liam McGeary, the first world champion from the UK and he became Bellator's light heavyweight champion and he's fighting Phil Davis, former national champion at Penn state. And Phil Davis is winning the fight and he's dominating the fight. He's up two rounds to none, three rounds to none. He's up four rounds to none. He's dominating, but McGeary is a dangerous Brazilian jujitsu submission guy and he can submit you out of nowhere. So all of a sudden the champion's down four, nothing. And, but against a, he's dangerous as you go to the fifth round and all of your studying, sometimes it won't pay off. And then on this occasion, all of my studying led me in my head to remember a fight, a very famous fight in the MMA world that I had studied and learned when Anderson Silva fought Chael Sonnen. And Chael dominated the fight and was up four rounds to none and was on his way to winning against a very dangerous submission fighter. And in the fifth round, he got Carroll anyway. So I knew this in my head. And of all the people in all the world that night sitting next to me calling the fight, is Chael Sonnen. So I immediately, I can turn to Chael and ask him about that, this exact situation. And that is a moment of preparation and hard work meeting opportunity. And that's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what sport you're doing. If you're doing girls field hockey or whatever, if you are prepared, your moment will come to tell a story. And that's where, yeah, it's hard starting from scratch with a new sport, but if you do the work, it'll all pay off. I think that's an excellent way to end the podcast. It's a great story as well. And the fact you got to sit next to Charles Sonnen, I'm very right, jealous. That's of my him. boy. I love that guy. <laughs> Thanks for love joining us. Dude. Thank you for joining us, Sean. I know that you're a busy guy. Yeah, thank you, you again. Go. This was awesome. Thank you. No worries. You have a good day, bro. Oh, you too, man. Thank you. See you guys. How did you like that? I love it. <laughs> That was so... What, what I'm going to need to do now... Oh, my God. Woo. What we need to do now is I need to end this recording so I can download that audio. Then we're going to need to do like an on-the-flight intro. Just like, here's some audio from our interview with Sean Grande the other day. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to send you another link in a moment. Okay, perfect. Perfect.